Today we're going to focus on something a little bit different. We're going to talk about how the gospel impacts our work. So put simply, the gospel impacts our work. And I'm not just talking about our vocations, the things we do for money or our careers. Um, I'm talking about things that we put our effort into, right? Things that we want to find our identity in, whether that be hobbies, right? Or if you're a student, you're putting your effort into achieving a degree of some kind or achieving a certification of some time. That's your work, right? That's, that's what you're doing. Maybe it's your relationships with your roommates or your kids. If you're a parent, you're putting in your work and your effort uh, into those relationships. And those are, those are really important things. Maybe you have worked all the way through a career and you're retired, right? And you, you are putting your effort into relationships, into your community, into the things you love, things that you think are, are worthwhile for your time. These are all ways that we are working. So we want to talk about how, how does the gospel impact the things that we put our efforts into. Um, for me, when I, when I first moved here with Natalie, I was looking around for a job, and I really needed to pay some bills. It was our very first year of marriage. We'd been married for like a week. I think we'd been married for a week. So we're trying to, trying to get things settled. I'm searching everywhere for a job. And I'm looking for something that, um, that will give me a sense of purpose, right? We're talking about good jobs, things that we will be able to derive some kind of meaning from. So we're, we're searching around all over the place. I finally find, you know, the, the very first thing I can find, which is a sales management training program. So next thing I know, I'm in the sales management training program. Training apparently consists of sneaking around to Menards and getting people to buy direct TV from you. So this is what I was doing for my, my first couple of months of living here. It's actually how I met Chris for the very first time. He was trucking around the Menards with his kids looking for something, you know, handy to do. And I'm like, you know, my job is to say, hey, you finding everything okay? And there are some, you know, people are like, oh, he must work at Menards. They're like, yeah, I'm finding everything fine. And then you switch it on and you're like, what kind of TV do you have? And then you're there, right? You're getting them over to your little kiosk, getting them to buy a little direct TV from you, right? So for me, this was not the best job ever. There are plenty of people who do sales. Sales is really important. And there are plenty of people who are really good at it and do drive a lot of meaning from it, right? They sell a meaningful product. For me, this was not the most, uh, this was not the most satisfying kind of work <laughs> to, uh, to try and do. So... I felt like I was working really hard uh, for the right reasons, you know, to pay the bills, to support my family, um, and to be, to be active in doing things. But I also found that in that, I was not getting any kind of satisfaction that I was expecting from a job, right? So it wasn't just work. I was, I was toiling, right? I was toiling away. And this is true. Uh, I hope that I'm not the only student who ever felt like I was in a class where I was toiling and I wasn't, you know, at the end of class when I... When I took the test, I didn't feel like, wow, I'm so glad I took that test. I know all those facts about statistics now. Like, wow, you know, my life has changed, right? We, even in, in, our, in, in our studies, we toil, right? In all, in all of our careers, now I work at the Shalom Community Center. I do find that that is meaningful work that's helpful to people, and, and I find that I have a positive impact on people's lives, right? But even in that, there are times where I'm doing mindless data entry, or there, or there are things that disappoint me. I try to do something to help somebody, and it falls through. Right? Even in, in meaningful jobs, like jobs that are good for society and that kind of thing, we can find uh, that we're toiling away, and we don't derive the meaning and really the sense of identity that we're trying to find in the things that we put our identity in. So even if you're at home parenting, you, know, you, you work really hard to train your toddlers, uh, potty training, 
that kind of thing. You're putting in all the work. You've read all the blogs. You, you're trying to do everything right, but you still end up with a kid crawling into your bed and peeing on you, right? You still got, you know, you still got pee in the bed, right? So we, we work hard, and we still have disappointment. We still have toil, and we all have a little pee in the bed. So what, what, do we do, what do we do with this tension between a desire to work meaningfully and the fact that in every opportunity that we have to work, we find that there's some disappointment that colors that. Uh, that brings us to our text this morning, and I think the Bible has a lot to say about this. We're going to be in Genesis 1, 27 through 2, 3. That's on page 2 in the gray Bibles in the rows with you. If you don't have a Bible, that gray Bible is our gift to you. We want to make sure everybody has an opportunity to, uh, to read the scriptures. So you can take that with you if you don't have one at home. We're in Genesis 1, 27. If you guys would stand up um, and I'll read this for us. Genesis 1, 27 says this. It says, So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of the earth and every tree with seed in its fruit. You shall have them for food. And to every beast of the earth and to every bird of the heavens and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so, and God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning the sixth day. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the host of them. And on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it he rested from all of his work that he had done in creation. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You can be seated. So right in the beginning, we see that God, um, God has a, a purpose for humankind that has to do with our work. In verse 27, it says, God creates man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. In verse 28, and God blessed them. So right at the beginning, we, we've seen in the, the verses right before this, God creates uh, the fixed things, he creates mountains and math and the universe and things that are just fixed, they're just part of it, right? They're the laws by which everything works. God is making those things. Then he makes plants and animals and all kinds of flora and fauna all over the earth. And everything's teeming and, and moving around and the earth is, is being sustained by God. And then he, he breaks off and he says, okay, now I'm going to do something a little bit different. I'm not just going to create something. I'm going to create something that is like me. So God creates mankind in his own image. He says, I have this awesome creation, and I'm going to make something that can reflect my goodness and greatness into the creation that I have made. So the way that these people are doing this is found in verse 28. God says, he gives them a job to do. He says, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the creation. So the first thing, fill the earth with these things that are like me. Fill the earth with people. He says, be fruitful and multiply. And then he says, and subdue it and have dominion over it. So God's given value to human life uh, in a very special way that's different from anything else in creation. And he gives purpose to it. He gives work for them to do. In the same way that God holds together those fixed things 
he is offering humankind the opportunity to go alongside him in uh, caring for the created order. So they have dominion over the things that are alive on the earth and they're tending the Garden of Eden alongside God. And so in the beginning, God is working himself and he is giving humans the opportunity to work alongside him. And that is meaningful because they are living out their true identity. Their true identity is to work with God in taking care of the created order. And that is something uh, that I think we are longing for. That's why we're longing for meaningful work. Because there's something in all of us that says, Man, sh- shouldn't I be doing something? Shouldn't I be... Isn't there something that, uh, that I can derive meaning from and that will give me satisfaction? I think that's here in Genesis. Our satisfaction comes from working alongside God with the things that he is already doing. So that's where that longing comes from. But where does the toil come from? Why are we toiling? Uh, That's later in chapter 3. We see that Adam and Eve are given these awesome things to do with God, and he gives them one limit, and it's in the very center of the garden. And he says, there's a tree in the center of the garden that will give you the knowledge of good and evil. That's not part of your work. That's, That's part of God's work, is to know good and evil and to know what to do about it. And he says, don't eat from that tree. Just kind of ignore that. Everything else you can have. You can go as far and wide as you want to explore. But right here in the center where God is, where God has responsibility, there's no need for you guys to do that. So what do Adam and Eve do? They go over there and they eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, right? It's the, the first thing we do when we get, you know, a tantalizing uh, thing that we shouldn't do. We're like, well, maybe, maybe I should do that, right? So Adam and Eve go over there and they're like, oh, I'm just over here hanging out by the tree. And then... Satan shows up and he's like, hey guys, how about this tree? Looks good. And so Adam and Eve are like, wow, this does look good. And it's good, you know, Eve says, it's good for becoming wise too. And they're like, yeah, well, maybe, maybe we should just go ahead and do this. So they do, right? They do. And they, they overstep their limits. Suddenly they are responsible for the knowledge of good and evil. Their innocence is gone. And that's not something, that's not the kind of work that, human beings are created for, right? That's not something we're very good at handling, right? Injustice is rampant in human history and in our lives. It's just, it's just not something we know what to do with. So God shows up and he gives them a little feedback about their work, right? God is a good, a good boss. He's a good manager. And like a good boss, you know, he'll encourage you when you're doing good things. And he'll also let you know, well, you didn't do that the way I thought you would. You didn't meet my expectations. Um, so God, in chapter 3, gives feedback to Eve, and then he starts talking to Adam um, in 3, verse 17. Uh, First he's talked to Eve, and now he's scolding Adam about um, what he did. And he says, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain shall you eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field by the sweat of your face. You shall eat bread till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. Right? This is, um, this is a grave thing that they have done, right? So God's feedback is not uh, quite as uh, gilded as we like to give each other feedback or like we want our boss to give. God says the truth. He says, you have overstepped your bounds, um, and this is what's going to happen because of it. You are gonna, you're still going to work. Work is the same. Our purpose is still to tend for creation 
and to tend to each other and build our relationships. And our work is still to be in relationship with God, but because that relationship has been broken by humans, so too our relationship with each other is broken and our relationship to work is broken. And that's where toil comes in. That's where this, this thankless effort, uh, that's why that's part of our experience as humans. That's right there uh, in the very beginning of the Bible. It's very elemental to, to who we are. So, um, so what do we do about that? What does God do about this? He pronounces this, uh, this feedback, right, as the boss. He's basically like, you're fired. <laughs> no, he's dead. he doesn't say that. He doesn't say that. He doesn't say, you're, you're fired, you know, the universe is ruined, so I'm going to start over. See you guys never. <laughs> so, right, God, God does not do this. He doesn't leave Adam and Eve hanging. He creates, uh, he makes clothes for them out of, out of the animals, and he says, all right, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to send you out of this kind of reality, but you're still going to work, and I'm still going to redeem you. So God is always offering this redemption, not only uh, between humankind and himself, but because of that redemption, we have uh, redeemed relationships with each other and to work. So that's why we're still working and we're still here and that we have this story that God didn't just start over. So all through human history and what's recorded in the Old Testament, God is uh, fulfilling his redemptive plan and he is encountering human beings and he's teaching them about himself. And all this culminates in the incarnation of Christ in the beginning of the New Testament where Jesus shows up on the scene. Jesus shows up on the scene as a Jew. These are the people who are worshiping God, the God from the creation. And he has been showing them how to redeem themselves all the way till Jesus shows up and says, hey, I'm God and I'm doing a new thing. And Jesus enacts um, the new covenant with us. And he says, God's kingdom is coming to the earth through me and you can be part of it and you can work for it. So Jesus is preaching about giving people a new identity, not somebody who toils away and, and has a, a thankless purpose, but what Jesus does is gives people and us a new identity. And out of that, um, our, our work can be meaningful. So what Jesus does is, first he lives as an example for us and he teaches about what it is to act like a redeemed person and what it is to submit to God and... Uh, fess up to our own limitations. But then he does something further. He doesn't just command things of us. He comes down and he dies on a cross. He dies a substitutionary death for the evil that we have done. He says the relationship between God and man is broken and people are guilty for that. But I am going to die as if I was guilty for that in their place. Because Jesus, Jesus lives a, a perfect life. He is God. And he says... You guys deserve this punishment and this pretty stark feedback from God. But I'm going to take that on myself. And not only does he die for our sins, but he rises again from the dead and he says, no more penalty. Accept, accept what I've done. Accept this gift of life and a new identity in me. And that penalty, that penalty is paid for once and for all. So that's the, that's the good news. That's the hope of a Christian is that our identity is wrapped up in Christ and he has said, you're not guilty of that anymore. You're not guilty of anything anymore. I, I'm going to clothe you with my righteousness. I'm going to clothe you with my good standing before God. And because of our new clothing, because of our new identity, we can go into uh, all aspects of life redeemed and join with God again 
in redeeming and taming creation and restoring relationships together. And a really good example of this is Paul, who has written a bulk of the New Testament uh, books. And Paul was an early church leader who planted churches all over the known world. And Paul was not always a Christian. He was not uh, born and raised to be a super sweet guy. Before Paul was named Paul, he was named Saul. He was born in privilege. He was not just a high-ranking uh, Jewish intellectual and a person with authority spiritually and a lot of education. He was also a Roman citizen, which was weird because the Jews were being oppressed by the Romans, but he had, he had standing both with the Jews and with the Romans. So he had, he had this, like, he was this powerful personality. And when the Christians started cropping up just after the death and resurrection of Jesus, Saul said, this is not, this is not what we're going to do. This is not what I've been taught. This is not this is not congruent with my identity. My identity is to work really hard and earn the, the privilege that I have. And these Christians are saying, Jesus just gives you goodness, right? This is, not, this is not what Saul is down with. So Saul makes it his effort to go around from town to town, rounding up the Christians and killing them. And that's, that's his job. He gets papers from the government to go round up Christians and murder them. So on his way to go do this, you know, one fine Saul morning, he's with his pals, apparently going to Damascus to do this, and he has an encounter with the risen Christ, and it changes his life. Jesus comes to them in a vision, and there's a huge flash of light, and Jesus speaks to Paul and the people with him, and he says, he says, Saul, why are you, why are you doing this? Why are you persecuting me? Why is this what you are doing with your life? And they have, they have an exchange, and Jesus says, no, this is not what you're going to do with your life. I am going to use you as my instrument to go through all the world and to speak to people uh, who aren't even Jews, who don't even know about the God of creation. He says, I'm going to use you as my instrument. And that's, that's who you are now. He, says, you're, he basically says, you're forgiven, you're a new person, and you're going to join me in the work of redemption. So Saul, who is dramatically opposed to Christianity, all of a sudden becomes a person who is one of the most important catalysts for the gospel in the first century. He is all over the place, going even farther and wider than he was ever going before, working to spread the good news, not to stifle it. And one of the places he goes is a city called Thessalonica, and we have two letters that Paul wrote to the church in Thessalonica. We're going to read a little bit out of that um, because I think this is really important to see how Paul's identity has changed into someone who does things that are informed by his new identity. So we're going to look at how he works among the Thessalonians. So in 1 Thessalonians 2.9, he writes to them, and he writes to them in 2.9, he says, For remember, brothers, our labor and our toil. We worked day and night that we might not be a burden to any of you while we proclaim to you the gospel of God. So Paul, who is still an authoritative figure, he is still a person with privilege, and even in the Christian community, he is a big hitter, right? He is, he is going around correcting the doctrine of the apostles who spent, you know, Jesus' whole ministry with Jesus, you know? And he is going around saying, hey, I think this is really how we should do things. He is an authoritative figure. And when he comes to the church in Thessalonica, he doesn't come to them like, I don't know, like a Billy Graham figure to be, you know, put on a stage. Not that Billy Graham 
was proud in any way. He did a lot of good for the gospel. But Paul does not come assuming that people will respect him. And he doesn't come assuming that people are going to wait on him and make him feel like an honored guest. It says, remember, brothers, our labor and our toil. We work day and night that we might not be a burden to any of you. He comes and he works alongside them in humility. Why does Paul do this? It's because he knows that Jesus, who has ultimate authority, who is the creator, who is the one who sustains the universe, came to earth in humility. He was born in a barn. He was raised by people who uh, worked with their hands. Mostly we hear about Jesus being a carpenter, but there wasn't a lot of wood in that area. He probably knew how to work with wood, but he probably also worked primarily with stone. So he was probably doing a lot of manual labor that was very difficult. And this is what the creator of the universe does when he comes to earth. He comes in humility to work alongside us to walk alongside us, not as the Bible says, Jesus did not count equality with God as something to be grasped a hold of. He, he lets it go, and he comes to us in humility. Paul, who understands that, that that's the goodness, that's the righteousness that is his identity, that's how he approaches work. He says, I've got to be humble in the same way Christ was humble. Um, this, this is a really convicting servant to prepare because I've had a lot of jobs, and I don't think any of us can say, and I know certainly I cannot say that I approach my work with the humility that Christ <laughs> approaches the world, right? I work at Blooming Foods Market and Deli over on the east side, and in, um, in the grocery business, we've got to rotate our stock so that the milk doesn't go bad on the shelf. I've got to put the new milk in the back so the old milk will sell. Very simple thing. And we've got a lot of people on the crew working a lot of different shifts, and you've got people who who come in one shift, and I don't see the people who work in the evening shift. So we've got a little logbook where I can write important messages to them, and they can write important messages back to me so things work really cohesively. It's a nice way to say, hey, you know, we're all on the same team. We're trying to work together to sell some nice milk to people. <laughs> right? This is, a, this is a way for us to come to each other with humility and say, hey, I understand what it is to work this job. Here's a little tip. Here's, here's something I did just so you can be aware of it. Not how the logbook actually works. The logbook works like this. I am mad about something, and now you get to hear about it. And that's the logbook. And that's how I, that's how I approach the logbook sometimes, right? That's how I approach my coworkers. I, I have written this in the logbook before. I wrote this uh, phrase. We do not have in the budget a rotation warden, and so we must all do his duty. And I, I don't know what I thought. I guess I thought, that'll show them. Like, I, don't know what, I don't know what's going on. But, but that's, that's one remarkable instance where I can think of just being totally proud and assuming that I am the be-all, end-all, perishables, shelf stalker, and it is my time to tell everybody exactly how the job's done, right? You know, so do we, do we have parts, uh, parts in our job where we are not acting humbly the way Christ comes to us and meekly and saying, you know, hey, we're on, e- we're on even footing. Let's work together. So that's the first way that Paul goes to the church. He works with humility. The second way is in uh, verse 411. He says, um, he says to them a little later in the letter, um, but we urge you, brothers, to do this more and more, to aspire to live quietly, to mind your own affairs, and to work with your hands as we instructed you so that you may walk properly before outsiders and be dependent on no one. Paul sets an example for others. 
instead of demanding it. He doesn't show up as the big shot preacher and say, this is all the stuff you've got to do. See ya. He goes on in the ground and he says, I'm going to work alongside you and show you what I mean. Right? And Jesus does the same thing. So Paul is still acting out of his identity in Christ. He is still saying, Jesus did this, and so this is how I'm going to live. My identity is in Christ, and so this is what I'm going to do. Jesus comes to earth, and he lives a perfect life, right? He lives a life to which God does not give negative feedback. <laughs> he lives a life where God says, good job, you did it. You did what, what was expected of you, and he gives that to us, right? So Paul has that uh, assurance that no matter how he does at his work, no matter if things are frustrating or if he fails or if he is sinful in his work, God is going to approve of what he has done because Christ has already approved of him. So he comes and he works alongside them, setting the example instead of expecting a standard and not, and not doing it himself. Um, this is another uh, great way for me to stand back and say, where in my work am I actually setting the example? I feel like a lot of times I do things adequately. I do what I'm supposed to do, especially when my boss is around. You know, we, we want to, to do things that, you know, will get us a good grade. You know, if you ever asked your teacher, is this on the test, right? We want to know, is, this, are you, is anybody going to notice what I'm doing here? Am I, gonna, am I setting any kind of example? Paul, it doesn't really matter to him what the feedback is going to be because he's already centered in that. He already knows the feedback from God is going to be approval. So he sets an example um, for them. And it's not about his pride, and it's not about people thinking that we're really awesome, but it is about making sure that we're doing our work adequately, and more than adequately, that we're doing it well, right? Paul says, not just that they need to work with their hands so that they'll be fulfilled. He doesn't just say, do your work really well so that you will feel like you did a good job, right? He says... Do your work and work with your hands as we instructed you so that you may walk properly before outsiders, right? He says, this is not just about you. The way you work has a huge bearing on how others view you, right? That's, that's pretty clear. If everybody in any kind of team job, you all kind of know in the back of your head who is the guy that is not really trustworthy or who is the person who is probably not going to get it done the way you want it to get done, Right? And if you are the person on the team who everybody kind of thinks, well, I mean, he's here, and, you know, he shows up, you know, he's on time, but he doesn't really pull his weight, or you know, he doesn't really do the work really well. I mean, if, if that's the way that you are reflecting the gospel, if that's the way that I am reflecting the gospel, then that is no reflection of the truth that we know about what Christ has done. Because Christ doesn't wait in the wings for people to say, Jesus, you're a smart guy, like... What do you think? We think you're really great. Jesus is already on the ground. He is proactive. He is initiating conversations with people. He is doing the work uh, that he is called to do really, really well. And he is not making a a huge burden on other people. He is not making his disciples do all the work, right? He is not saying like, oh, Peter, I don't want to do it today. Why don't you, you know, feed 5,000 people? I'm just going to sit back. Why don't you guys figure it out, right? Jesus is saying, I've got this, I'm, I'm part of the team, I'm, I'm doing what I'm supposed to do. And so Paul is doing the same thing, setting that example, and he's, he's saying to the Thessalonian church and to us, we need to be setting a good example at work and working really hard, or else when people ask us about our identity in Christ, when we go to people and say, I'm a Christian, I go to Redeemer, I believe this about Jesus, <laughs> but all they know about you is that you're kind of a schlup, 
Like, <laughs> this is not reflecting well on the gospel that we know. So that's why Paul, Paul tells us that. And the last thing he does is he, um, he admonishes idlers. This is in the second letter to the Thessalonians, um, in chapter 3, verse 6, if you're following along. He says this, Now we command you, brothers, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you keep away from any brother who is walking in idleness and not in accord with, tra- with the tradition that you received from us. So this is specifically within the church body. Paul is saying, if there are people in your covenant group, in your membership, your regular attenders, people who say, I'm on board with being a part of Redeemer or the Thessalonian church, and I'm here to, to go alongside you guys as you uh, work to redeem your relationship with God and each other and with the world, but they're never there, and they never, they're never helping out, they're never pulling their weight in the church. Paul is saying, be careful of people who, who say one thing, but they're totally idle. In verse 7, he goes on to say, For you yourselves know how you ought to imitate us, because we were not idle when we were with you, nor did we eat anyone's bread without paying for it. But with toil and labor we worked night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you. It was not because we do not have the right, uh, but to give you in ourselves an example to imitate. For even when we were with you, we would give this command. If anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. For we say... uh, For we hear that some among you walk in idleness, not at work, but busybodies. Now such persons we command and encourage in the Lord Jesus Christ to do their work quietly and to earn their own living. So he's saying there are people in the body, in the the Thessalonian church, who just aren't doing anything, right? They're not handing out bulletins. They're not volunteering for kids, CG. They're They're just not getting involved with the work that needs to be done to keep the community rolling. And Paul is saying, look, this is not what we did. Even though we're not really part of your body, even though we were just visiting for a time, we got right on board and we started working, right? And that's because Jesus, who, Jesus who was on the earth, not really part of the whole human scene, not guilty of the things that humans are guilty of, gets on the ground anyway, eats, you know, washes his, washes his hands, you know, he lets people do work, he does work alongside them, he's part of it, right? And Jesus doesn't sit back and say, I'll just let everybody else do stuff for me. Right? This, is, this is important for the covenant body. And this is what Paul is talking about. But it also, just like we were saying before, is really important in our work with people who we're not in covenant membership with, people who are not on board with the gospel. It's really important for us to not shirk our work. When um, at Blooming Foods, if I have not rotated properly and heeded my own warnings in the logbook and milk goes out of date, I've got to record that on this big clipboard. So there's this huge clipboard where I'm like, okay, we lost three Organic Valley milks, and it was $3, and there were five of them, and I have to record all this information. It's kind of arduous, and it is by no means the most important thing that I do, right? The most important thing we do is we get product on the shelves, and there's a, a huge flurry of activity that we are doing that that is probably the last on the priority list. But I have done plenty of times, sat back there with my lunch, you know, I've got my coffee, maybe a little biscuit from the, from the deli, and I'm sitting there, I'm like... It's time to get to work. Everybody's getting to work. But I should, maybe I'll just do this blog real quick. Maybe I'll, I need to write down these facts and figures for a little while. Maybe for 10 minutes I need to do that. Right? This is, I'm idling, right? I'm sitting back there. He says, uh, he's warning against idlers and busybodies, right? I'm not doing nothing. I'm doing something. It's work, right? It's technically work, but I'm not really helping with what needs to get done. 
right? So, I, I mean, again and again, just reading these passages and preparing this sermon, I'm like, wow, I'm blown away. I really need to, <laughs> really need to think about this, and I hope um, this is as convicting for you as it was for me. But, <laughs> so, he says, um, don't be busybodies, don't be idlers. Finally, he says in verse 13, as for you, brothers, do not grow weary in doing good. He's expecting that the people who are receiving this letter are the people who are active enough in the church to actually be there when the letter shows up. <laughs> so he says, he says to them, don't grow weary in doing good, right? We know that people are, there are certain people in a church, at a job, anywhere we're working and putting in effort who are putting in more than their fair share of the effort, right? If you're a stay-at-home parent, you probably feel like you're putting in a pretty big share in how your kids are being raised up, you know? Different from their teachers, different from babysitters, different from other people who are helping you raise your, your child. You know, you are putting in the brunt of the work, and you're probably also the one who's getting the most pee in your bed, right? So, <laughs> Paul says, and we need this, we need to hear this. Brothers, do not grow weary in doing good, right? Don't grow weary in doing good. Jesus doesn't grow weary in doing good. Jesus walks everywhere on foot and doesn't have anywhere to sleep, and he continually serves people and pours into them. He performs miracles. He feeds people. He heals the sick. He spreads the good news. Paul is doing the same thing when he comes to the Thessalonians. He's not letting up when he arrives there. He probably had a really long, arduous, ancient times, horseback journey to get to Thessalonica. A lot different than a five-hour flight. He's probably really tired, but he just jumps in. He says, wow, I need to, get, I need to start working, right? And so he knows, as well as we do, that we, we need to not grow weary in doing good. In verse 14 he says, if anybody does not obey what we say in this letter, take note of that person. Have nothing to do with him that he may be ashamed. Do not regard him as an enemy, but warn him as a brother. So Paul says, if there are people in your body who don't want to show up to things, you don't have to go after them and beat them up, right? You don't have to treat them as an enemy. But this last sentence is really important. He says, but warn him as a brother. Warn these people who are part of the community, the church, go to them, offer the hand to say, hey, it's time to repent, and it's time to become part of our body again, right? It's time to come back and function in your identity in Christ, right? We, we, we do this in a million ways. We become wayward. We, we turn away from God. We're people who, who sin constantly and sin against God and one another and in our work, and we need the community of Christ who are, who are doing good to reach out to us and say, hey, come back, right? Be redeemed, be forgiven, be part of this again. So it says, do not regard them as enemies, but warn them as a brother. Um, this is important, not just in the covenant community of the church, but also in where we work and the people we meet day to day, right? There are people we meet all the time who need the hand that says, there is forgiveness and there is redemption for you. And as people whose identity is in Christ, if you're a Christian and you know that God has reached out that hand of forgiveness to you, man, it is our, it is our duty to say, I see you struggling, brother. I see you struggling, friend. And I, you need to know that there is, there is grace and forgiveness for that. And that there is peace and there is rest in an identity with Christ. So all these things that we have talked about, about being humble and setting the example and working diligently to honor God, culminates in this point where Christians need to look out at a broken world and say, there is redemption for the brokenness that we see around us. And we need to be the people who offer it, right? Because 
Pastor Chris or Billy Graham or all these people aren't in the back room of Blooming Foods, right? You are put, just like Jesus, just like Paul was, we are put in the places that we are in life with our specific skills at a specific time in a specific place. And God has you there on purpose. And it's important to open our eyes to that and realize that, uh, that warning people as brothers is a really important part of what we do. So finally, um, before we get really overloaded, right? And again, we don't want to grow weary in doing good. We need to look back at the Genesis passage in Genesis 2 and see what God says about rest. In Genesis 2, he says, Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the host of them. So God is done with his task. He has done a great job, and creation is awesome. But God doesn't just jump to the next thing. He says, okay, finished, check, good job, me. And he rests. He says, and on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all the work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy because on it he rested from all the work that he had done in creation. So rest is something, it's not work and it's not idleness. It's something different. It's something where we are rejuvenating ourselves um, and accepting our limitations. God rests not because he has limitations, but God rests as an example for us. It says he makes the seventh day holy. He makes a time of rest set apart and special, right? So he does it for two reasons. The first reason is humans are finite. We can't just go and go like the Energizer Bunny forever. We have to accept our limitations. That's important before the fall and after the fall, especially now. We have to accept that we're not good enough and we're not all powerful and we're not, we're not for going and going forever. We have to rest and we have to rejuvenate ourselves and accept that you have limits. The second thing that the Sabbath does and one reason, another reason why God makes it holy is because it's not just a time to accept our limits, but it's a time to notice God's greatness. It's a time to set aside once a week to say, I am not sufficient for the work that there is to do, but because of what God has done in me and because God is strong where I am weak, I can do these things and I can endure and I can look forward to the hope of when God will restore creation in me and everything. So we accept our limits in rest and we worship God. That's why we're gathered once a week is because the tradition that God sets is once a week we acknowledge his greatness in spite of our weakness. But this is important day to day too. Jesus, uh, anytime that he does a huge uh, miracle or he's with a giant crowd or he is having a really intense experience with one of his disciples, he, it, a lot of times talks about him going away and going to a room and he's got to rest because he has human limitations. But he's also praying to God and being rejuvenated spiritually and, and worshiping God, his father. So that example is from Christ. That example is something we see Paul do. And that's something that is really important for us to do. We can all accept uh, a little rest. So students, as, as you study, know that it is important to take a step back from your studies and say, I need to rest. And God is great. And God will help me persevere through these difficult things. If you are training up your kids and you're a parent, it's really important for you to be able to get away with your spouse or just get away and rest and be separate from the work that you are doing so arduously. So one thing that we talked about with the Song of Solomon series is uh, people who don't have kids, 
one thing we're trying to do is encourage you to talk to a married couple you know, babysit their kids, let them get away, and rest for a time, right? This is really important. So they can be rejuvenated in their marriage, right? And be, uh, you know, free of the work that they have to do. So that's one thing. Another way we can do that is to serve uh, as a kid's teacher and to serve as a kid's CG leader throughout the week. If you're interested in that, we are really looking for a lot of volunteers for that, specifically in our body. And that's a really great way to help parents and people who are working really hard uh, to be able to rest. Um, So the work, uh, uh, the gospel impacts our work by showing us that we can do it humbly, um, that we can set a good example, and that we can call people to repentance and definitely confess ourselves, our weaknesses, um, and that we can rest, right? We can let up because of what Christ has done for us. One way that we do that is that every week we take communion together. Communion is a symbol of what Christ has done on the cross for us. On the night he was betrayed, he broke bread, and he said to his disciples, this is my body, broken for you. Eat this in remembrance of me. Likewise, he took a cup, and he said, a cup of wine, and he said, this is my blood poured out. Drink this in remembrance of me. So every week at Redeemer, we eat that meal, and we remember that our identity is secure in Christ. Um, So in a moment, I'm going to pray, and you're free to come up the aisles. And this meal is for Christians. We rip some of the bread, we dip it in the juice or wine. The wine is marked with twine, and uh, we eat it as we go. And if you're not a Christian, and you're uh, you're not reminding yourself of your identity in Christ, this is your time to accept him. This is your time Uh, to take Christ. So if you want to talk about that or pray about that, I'm going to be in the back uh, during this time for anybody who needs to pray. Uh, We're going to move into a time of communion and remembering our identity in Jesus. Will you pray with me? Um, Father in heaven, uh, thank you for a Sabbath day. Thank you for a day uh, to recognize you as our God. Uh, Thank you for the songs that we've been able to sing and the words that we've spoken together that remind us of our hope in you and remind us of our forgiveness in you and remind us of your mercy to us. We pray as we come up for communion that you will refresh our memory and that you will give us good rest. And uh, we thank you for it. In Jesus' name, amen.